Well, this morning, this is Jesus, is our series, and we're going to begin looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And this is the first major section that Matthew records of Jesus' teaching. Now, we know earlier in the book that he's preaching repentance, that he's preaching about righteousness, but here, Matthew actually records what Jesus teaches. And that is just so exciting to me. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but in the first 400 years of the church, this was the most popular section of Scripture. It was quoted more often than anything else. But it is interesting in our day, and especially currently, um, that's kind of changed. In fact, today, if you did a survey, a lot of people don't even know what the Sermon of the Mount is. And I think the number one answer for who preached the Sermon on the Mount is Billy Graham. So, I mean, that's how much people don't know what the Sermon on the Mount is. Now, this is Jesus, and he is talking about how to grow as a Christian, how, how to express a Christian life. And I just don't think there's anybody better to learn from than Jesus himself. Now, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, some people love it, some people hate it, but you can't ignore what Jesus says. It's interesting. People have the same reactions to what Jesus taught as they do to the person of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at this. Now, some important things to know. Some people think, oh man, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, oh, that is so challenging, so difficult. Thankfully, we got rid of the Ten Commandments. Now we get to live by the teaching of Jesus, which is just to love God and love others. But one of the things that you realize is that it's impossible to keep the, old te the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. But how much greater is it impossible for a person to live out the things that Jesus said apart from the transformed heart that happens when a person enters a relationship with Jesus? Jesus' standard is so much higher than in the Old Testament when, when you look at the actual rules and the lists and the things that we're to do. And so this is very, very challenging, but it's actually something that flows naturally out of the heart of a person who's been spiritually transformed. And so this is an amazing passage. Now, when you think about it, sometimes people don't live out what Jesus is going to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount because they actually don't know Jesus. See, it is impossible to live out the things that Jesus is going to talk about unless you are spiritually transformed, unless God's given you a new heart. So that's impossible. But I think that another thing that's happened in Christianity as a whole is we've kind of moved the target. Sometimes we don't think about who we are in Christ and who God has called us to be. So think for a minute about the Old Testament. I'm going to throw out four names. And just think about who do you want to be. So one example from Genesis, there's two examples. There's Joseph. Remember Joseph? Faithful guy, sold into slavery. And wherever he goes, God blesses him. When Potiphar's wife tries to hit on him, he's faithful to the Lord. He honors the Lord. He's thrown into prison. And God uses him greatly to save a nation. And then you could think about, well, okay, who else can we think about in the Old Testament? How about Lot? You think about Lot, he, he's looking over the land, 
And he pictures some, somewhere that's, that's good, that's beautiful, that's nice. And he says, I want to go there without any consideration of the fact that it is a wicked, evil city. And when you think about Lot's life, nobody reads the Old Testament and says, oh man, Lot, he was faithful. I want to be like Lot. Like when you think about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels come and say, Lot, you got to go. God's going to destroy this city. But, but Lot and his family loved it so much they wanted to stay. And the angels have to drag them out. When Lot finally tries to talk to his sons-in-law and he's saying, hey, we got to get out of here, they laugh because they think he's joking. There was nothing in his life that was a spiritual influence. He was a compromiser. And then you look at how that impacted his family. After they leave Sodom, his daughters get him drunk and end up getting pregnant by him. So this is kind of the life of Lot. But you want to know what the amazing thing is when you read the book of Hebrews? It tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented day by day by the things that he saw. And I think for many people, they don't think about who God has called them to be. And I think it, some people, they don't live out the Sermon on the Mount because they're not believers. Other people don't live out the Sermon on the Mount because they don't actually think about who they are and what God has called them to be, who God has called them to be. And so as I think about it, I'd rather be Joseph than Lot. You can think about Daniel, that faithful junior high kid taken into Babylon. He and his friends honor the Lord in their life, how powerfully God uses them. Or you can think about Samson, this guy that was blessed so much who just disregarded his spiritual privilege. And how the Lord still used him, but the grief, the sorrow, the pain in his life, because he didn't commit himself to honor and love the Lord and really live for the Lord. And so my challenge for us, there's actually a few of them, but one of those is to think about the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through it, for you to think about, is that in my heart? Is, are these things my desires? Do I see these things in my life? Do I want these qualities in my life? Uh, another one is to say, because if you don't, well, then that's a, a sign that maybe you don't know the Lord. On the other hand, to say, okay, am I really living my life in that way? Am I diligently disciplining myself to be the person that God has called me to be? So let's consider the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to start, we're going to look at three things. We should be pursuing God's blessing in our life. That is not a bad thing to pursue God's blessing. We need to focus on attitudes of the heart. And that really is what Jesus is talking about. Not external behavior, but the attitudes that flow out of a believer's heart. And ultimately, we are to be people who are living for God's glory. So those are the three things that we're going to see here this morning. So let's look at um, this passage, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, go there. In fact, you can open up and look at those. And one of the things, these, these are called Beatitudes. And it's because blessing, we call it a Beatitude. That is a Latin translation of the word blessed. And so that's where the Beatitudes, kind of the title of this section comes from. And this is talking about God's blessing in life. And so when we, when we think about God's blessing, I just want you to know that if you are a Christian, you don't have to work for God's blessing 
You have God's blessing. God loves you. He has blessed you. Your eternal destiny is an incredible blessing in your life. And we're not earning that. We're not trying to deserve it. We're not trying to achieve it. In one sense, that is a positional thing that happens with every Christian. In fact, God says this in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, he causes all things to work out for their good. So if you're a believer, you are blessed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And that holiness, that blamelessness is something that we get because of the righteousness of Christ, but it's also something that displays itself in our life. And so Jesus has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So if you're a Christian, you're blessed. But this is the interesting thing about this whole idea of blessing. Throughout the Old Testament, can you think of passages that talk about the blessing that comes from righteousness and a godly life, like Psalm, Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked? I mean, you just look at all the Psalms. Psalm 32, how blessed is the one to whom the Lord doesn't impute iniquity? You just think about all the Old Testament that talks about blessing. And in the New Testament, over and over, even in this passage, talking about blessing, it is right for a Christian to say, God, I love you, I want to honor you, and I want the blessing that comes in life from faithfulness and obedience. It's not wrong for believers to pursue that. And so um, one of the things we see in this passage is that every, every verse starts with the word blessing, right? Blessed. Why do you think Jesus does that? Because he's saying, you are blessed. You are in a great situation. The word blessed is to be happy, to be fortunate, to be in an enviable situation. It's to be lucky. Have you ever seen somebody and something really awesome happened to them and you just thought, man, why couldn't that be me? I thought about, you know, I had a cousin who won the lottery in Oregon twice. And I'm just thinking, man, the statistical chances of winning the lottery, man, that's insane. How does somebody win that twice? And why is it my cousin and not me? <laughs> I mean, blessing to... It is just so, so fortunate. Think about the people that you look at and just say, how fortunate can they be? Because this is what Jesus says, is that if you live these things out, you are going to be blessed. And here's the deal. We are not living out these things to try to earn blessing or to try to achieve blessing. These are a reflection of a person's life who is in a right relationship with the Lord, who is blessed. And so this is used many times in the Old Testament. It's used many times in the New Testament. Um, James says we're blessed in trials. The book of Revelation says you're blessed if you read these things and obey them. And Revelation over and over talks about how blessed people are who are going to heaven. So blessing is something that we, we really want. And I think that our problem in our culture is not that we pursue blessing or not that we pursue those things. The problem is that we look for them in the wrong places. Look what Jeremiah says here. It says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, 
broken cisterns that can hold no water. We live in a life and in a culture where people are trying to fill their lives with things, fill their lives with things that will make them happy. And those things are empty. They don't provide happiness. And so the great sin is not that people look for happiness. The great sin is that people look for happiness anywhere other than in a relationship with Christ. We see Hebrews says this. This is actually the beginning of genuine faith. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so this blessing is something that God pours out in the life of people who seek him. And so we need to seek blessing, but we need to seek it in the right place and for the right reasons. So let's spend a little moment here and let's actually look at this list of eight or nine, depending on how you count them, eight or nine Beatitudes. And uh, so let's just read the, the beginning here. It says, um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, so Jesus walks up onto the top of a mountain. Oh, crowds of people are following him. Now, you wouldn't get this from reading Matthew, but this is about a year and a half into Jesus's ministry. So he's been traveling, he's been teaching, he's been healing people, and people are coming from everywhere to hear him teach. And so he goes to the top of a mountain, and this is picturing Moses, how Moses goes to the top of a mountain and he gives the law. This is Jesus going to a mountain and teaching the principles of the kingdom of God. So just so you'll know where this is, um, do you see there Capernaum? That was the city that we looked at where Jesus and the disciples grew up. And then just a little bit off to the side, you'll see the, the Mount of Beatitudes. And there's a couple different places in Israel where people think this may be. And so they kind of guess where that is. When I was there, um, we stood on a mountain and this, this was the mountain that we were on. And there's like this flat plain up there. So it's the top of a mountain, but it's a flat plain. And you can, so you could see it up there. And from that location, you can see the whole Sea of Galilee. You see Capernaum. If you look across, there's like a little mountain. Do you remember when Jesus cast the demons out of the, um, into the pigs and they run off a cliff? Like that's directly across. You can see the cliffs where that happened. And there, Jesus is going to talk about salt and light and a city set on a hill. And right across from this location is a city right up top that you would see lights from. And so it's kind of interesting as Jesus is teaching and you can kind of see this setting. And so Jesus is going to list off some qualities. And just generally speaking, we're going to read through and briefly talk about them. But I want to just point them out and just make a few observations. So all of the yellow... So there are eight or nine Beatitudes, I'll mention that later. But one of the things that you'll notice is that almost all of these blessings, more than half of them have in view our eternal state, our eternal destiny, the fact that we're saved. Those are the ones that are in yellow. If you're poor in spirit, you have the kingdom of heaven. You'll, you'll, you, yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you're more and you're comforted, that's something that happens in this life. If you're meek and gentle, you inherit the earth. That is a picture of um, the millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns on earth and we reign with him. The desire for righteousness is satisfied. Mercy, people who are merciful receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. And, and that's, if you think about it, when people say things like, 
Are you ready to meet your maker? When do you see God? You see God when you die. And so this is talking about seeing and knowing God in this life, but the emphasis is in the future when we're with God in heaven. Um, Persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is why some people think there are only eight because it's the beginning is the kingdom of heaven, and then the next one is the beginning of heaven, and it's about persecution. And in all these beatitudes, they're little short sentences where the one who does this will receive this, the one who does this will receive this. But then the ninth one, it's this long explanation of persecution. And so some would group eight and nine, and they would group these last two verses in, in the ninth beatitude as just explaining what it means to be persecuted for righteousness. So you can think about that. But if you look at even number nine, your reward is great in heaven. See, as believers, we are citizens of heaven, not just of the earth. We do care about what happens in this life. This life does matter to us, but eternity is our priority, is our primary focus. It's the thing that we think of most. And this is what Jesus is talking about, a mind that thinks about eternity and heaven in a relationship with the Lord. So let's look through these Beatitudes. One other comment about the Beatitudes as a whole, it's not a list of separate things. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. You know, there are not fruits of the Spirit. It's singular, the fruit of the Spirit. These qualities all go together. They are all an expression of having a genuine relationship with Christ. But it can be helpful to think about them individually and to try to break it down and to say, okay, is that in my life? So let's go through some of these. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now to be poor in spirit, that's humility. That's to realize I am empty, I am bankrupt. The word for poor, there are, there are different words for poor. This is the word for abject poverty, the strongest word for being poor. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. When you think about poor in spirit, that's humility. That is realizing that you have nothing to offer God. Do you remember the publican who's beating his chest and he's looking down and he's just saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That is poor in spirit. And nobody enters the kingdom of God without being poor in spirit. You know, there are some people who feel like, man, God's pretty lucky to have me on his team. I'm pretty talented. I have lots of resources. And sometimes we think in those terms, if only God could save a professional athlete, or if only he could save somebody who was really famous, oh, God could use them greatly. God's not looking for talent. In fact, if you think you're talented, if you think you have a lot to offer, that's actually a roadblock to even getting into heaven. Do you remember Jesus says to the Pharisees, I've not come for the healthy, but I've come for the sick? Unless you realize you're sick, unless you realize you have nothing to offer, you cannot even go to heaven. And so that's the first thing Jesus talks about is when you're humble, when you realize that your only hope is Jesus, that's when you, the kingdom of heaven becomes yours. Now, the kingdom of heaven, that's salvation, that's God's rule, that pictures the earthly kingdom, it pictures heaven, but in all of these beatitudes, they're all future except the kingdom of heaven. That's present, that's saying yours is the kingdom of heaven now. 
And when you become a Christian, God rules in your heart. He rules your life. And you're in the kingdom now. So we've begun to be in the kingdom. But there is a kingdom that will be future. The second one is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now that word for mourn, it's the strongest word for grief, for mourning, for wailing. It's the words that's used at funerals. And when you think through Scripture, when you look through Scripture, mourning, first and foremost, is mourning over personal sin. Looking at the sin in your life, looking at the sin in the world, and just being grieved. Remember David, when he sinned, he just said, your, your hand is heavy on me. It's like the fever heat of summer. My body wasted away until I confessed my sin. That is a mark of a person who knows the Lord. First, they're humble. Secondly, sin grieves them. It breaks their heart. They mourn over their own sin. And so, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God comforts those who mourn over sin by forgiveness. You know, um, Isaiah 43, 25 says, I even am, I am he who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. When you sin, you can run to God and be forgiven. David talked about his life was miserable until he repented. Um, we also mourn over difficulties and sorrows in this life. Jesus says, in this life, you'll have trouble. After Lazarus died, the Bible said that Jesus wept. And so we mourn over sin. We mourn over the difficulties and struggles in life. And when we mourn, the promise is that we will be comforted. And so how are we comforted? Well, we're comforted by God. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us that God allows us to suffer so that he can comfort us and then so that we can comfort each other with the comfort that God has given us. And so blessed are those who mourn. There is the promise of comfort. The next one is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now meekness, that's gentleness. It's power under control. But some things to think about, it's considerate, it's mild, it's soft. Um, it's just that person that you want to be around. You ever met a gentle person? They're just kind, they're compassionate, they're soft, in some ways passive, not passive in a bad sense, but passive in a caring sense. They're people who, when they look at others, they feel for them. It's a person who's not trying to grab a hold of life and get what they deserve. It's a person who's gentle because they trust God to be in control. The gentle will inherit the earth. Um, they're going to be blessed. God is going to give them everything they need. Do you remember Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 20, where it says, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God? Gentleness is that quality that says, I don't have to make life right. It's my job to care for you, to be compassionate toward you, to encourage you. That's something that flows from the life of a person who knows the Lord. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So I had a question for you. What are you passionate about? What do you love? Um, if, if God came to you in a dream the way he came to Solomon and he said you could have anything you want, what would be on your list? 
What this is talking about is that people who have repented, who have trusted in Christ, their greatest desire, the things on their list would be righteousness. I want righteousness in my life. I want to see righteousness worked out in the world. That's my greatest desire. It's a hunger, a thirst, this intense desire. Um, I remember, um, have you ever been really, really thirsty? So when I wrestled in high school, one of the things I have to, had to do is I had to lose weight. And so I was always a little heavier than I was supposed to be. So I would cut weight at, right before tournaments. And so, you know, like a Two days before the tournaments, I didn't eat anything. The day before I wrestled, I didn't drink anything. So I'm just trying to get my body as light as it could possibly be. And sometimes I would just get so thirsty. In fact, I couldn't brush my teeth, which was terrible. Because if I brushed my teeth, when I went to rinse my mouth out, I would just start drinking water. It's like it was just too, too hard to have water. My grandfather was in World War II, and he was in the desert, in the Sahara Desert. And he told me about how one time he ran out of water in his canteen, and how he was so thirsty, he crawled underneath the Jeeps, and he opened up the little uh, bleeder on the bottom of the radiator, and he just got some water out of the radiator, and he just drank that. He's like, you know, Raj, if they would have caught me doing that, they would have shot me. Just that desperate desire for something. Christians, people who know the Lord, who have repented, have this desperate desire to see God's righteousness in their life and in the world. They're passionate about that. And they will be satisfied. Remember, Jesus says, ask anything in my name, and I'll give it to you. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is a desire that God will meet in your life. Look at verse 7. Blessed, is the, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. This is a tough one. You ever struggle with merciful, being merciful in your life? That's actually a forgiving spirit. That's, that's having a heart that says, I'm not going to give people what they deserve. And if people deserve anger, they deserve hatred, they deserve punishment, I'm not going to give them what they deserve. It's being merciful. It's being forgiving. It's being sympathetic. Being sympathetic is when you're impacted by another person emotionally, when you're soft-hearted toward them, your heart just goes out to them. That's being merciful toward people. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. You want to know who's not merciful? Prideful people aren't merciful. Arrogant people aren't merciful. Remember that first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. See, poor in spirit is humility when you think about yourself. Being merciful, that's humility expressed to others. That's humility that says, you know, actually, I got so many problems and I need so much of God's forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done, I can forgive you. Because my sin against God is so much greater than your sin against me. That is a natural thing that flows out of the heart of a person who knows the Lord. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart, that's the absence of pollution in your life, avoiding sin, that's motives that are right before God. Remember 1 Samuel 16, 7, where David is being marched in front of Samuel, and he's supposed to pick the next king. And God tells Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? 
He said, you are whitewashed tombs. Outside you look good, but inside you're full of rottenness and dead man's bones. See, the difference between the Pharisees, they took the Old Testament and they tried to put this in from the outside. They tried to just do all these behaviors without changing their heart and their attitude. When Jesus comes, it changes your heart and it does make it into your behavior. But it's something that flows from the inside out. It's not something that we just put on on the outside. And ultimately, we're pure in heart because of Christ, not because we always do everything right, but because of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You know, that's one of the qualities in a faithful believer's life is that they make peace. You ever meet somebody who's contentious? Wherever they go, there's kind of conflicts and there's fighting and there's difficulties. Well, believers are peacemakers. Remember James chapter um, 3, verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. And Titus chapter 3 talks about us, and it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. When Christ comes into your life, that transforms your life and you become a peacemaker. And just think about the qualities that have been listed so far. As those get expressed toward people, that makes peace. Have you ever go to family gatherings and you're like, oh my goodness, what kinds of conflicts are going to happen? Well, one of the things to ask yourself is, do you bring peace wherever you go? There could be people that are contentious, that are insulting, that are difficult. But if you show up, you're gracious, you're loving, you're compassionate, you're forgiving. You promote peacefulness. That's a quality in a believer's life. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And being called sons of God, that certainly could be your reputation where a person would look at you and say, oh man, that guy must be a Christian. Look at the way he responds in this situation. But being a son of God, that's actually most significantly something that Jesus says about you. It's something, a way that God defines you. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And we are. And that's the reason that the world doesn't know us. 1 John 3, 10 says, by this it is evident who the children of God, who are the children of God and the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who doesn't love his brother. i never forget the time John and Jackson were fighting. And they were probably, John was probably eight and Jackson was probably six. And John just says to me, I, I hate my brother. I don't know where John is. I hope this story's okay. But he says, man, I hate my brother. He drives me nuts and I hate him. And, and I remember Jackson, he was at that time a very irritating kid. And, and, and I read this verse to John. And I just said, John, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah. I said, well, actually what you're saying doesn't fit. Because if you hate Jackson, if you don't love your brother, then you don't love God. 
So I said, I don't, I don't know. You need to think about that. You need to pray about that because you can't love God and hate another person. You can't love God and hate your brother. So you need to think about what that means spiritually in your life. And John prayed about it for about three days, and he comes back to me and goes, Dad, I think I am a Christian. I have decided I don't hate Jackson. And so that was a, that was a positive thing. You know, those are like lessons for little kids, but don't we sometimes as adults, we still haven't learned those things. We're still not living those things out. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 3 says that people hated Jesus partly because he was righteous, he lived a righteous life, and that shined a light on their darkness. I have a question for you. Are you hated ever because you do the right thing? Are you the person that if you're maybe you're at work and people are saying, hey, somebody needs to lie about this. We need someone to, to, to lie about that. And you just say, yeah, sorry, I don't lie. I won't do that. Can you think about the pressure that you could face in, in di different situations to not be committed to righteousness? Imagine police officers working together and something going wrong and people getting together and saying, okay, we got to come up with a story. Does that kind of thing ever happen? And, and if you're the one who says, yeah, I don't shade the truth and I don't tell lies, I always say what's right. It is hard to function in business. Sometimes it's hard to function in sales. Sometimes it's hard to function even in, in areas that you would think would have integrity. If you are a person who always does what's right, Sometimes that brings persecution because it shines a light on the darkness around. Does that ever happen to you? Do you live that kind of a life of integrity that that brings persecution on occasion into your life? And so that's, that's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11 and 12, and I do think that these are a further explanation of that as Verse 11, and it says this, Blessed are you. Now think about how this is intensified. Blessed are you when others revile you. That's to speak against you, to have hateful words towards you. And persecute you. That's to pursue you with, with just saying, Oh man, I would love to see them destroyed. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's when, because of the name of Jesus, because we associate with Jesus, we're persecuted. So have you ever been persecuted for righteousness' sake? Have you ever been persecuted because you're a Christian? Do you stand for what's right? Do you stand for truth? And I'll just say, we have a, a, a Christian culture in the United States that is fading away. And in the same way that um, people have had hatred toward different people, Christians are painted as bigoted, hateful people. Like think about, you know, 15, 20 years ago, showing up to school and having like, wearing like Nazi clothes or trying to support being a Nazi. And just the pressure and people would say, oh man, you are a hated, you just hate people and the rejection and being a social outcast for being a person that associated yourself with a group like that. Of course, that would be wicked and that would be sinful to associate yourself with a group like that. But we live in a culture where 
more and more, if you're a faithful Christian, you will be painted as that kind of person. If you love people, if you care about them, if you try to point them to Christ, you'll be hated. So the question is, are you afraid of that? You ever know anybody? Have you ever felt it? Have you, have you ever thought, oh man, I'm going to work, I'm going to an interview, I want to get a job, but you just think, man, if anybody knew I was a Christian, I could never work. I, I know some people that are actors, and they keep it a secret that they're believers, because if people found out they were Christians, they would never work. And so we are in a culture that is going to grow in persecution are you a person who embraces persecution for the sake of Christ, who's willing to stand up and say, you can paint me however you want, but I'm going to live out who Jesus said I should be? See, this is what Jesus says. If you're persecuted for being a Christian, in verse 12 he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says, don't think about this life, you think about the future. Your reward in heaven will be great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That association, that connection, that we're like the other faithful people in history who have been persecuted. Think about the disciples. You, know, you think about Peter, how he denied Christ because he was afraid of persecution. But then later in Acts, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison, and they're singing, and they're rejoicing because they're thankful that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. What an amazing thing. Did you know that if you're a faithful Christian, you are promised persecution? In fact, this is what it says 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is not if. You will be persecuted. Jesus says in John 15.20, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so persecution is a guarantee for faithful Christian living. If as you live your Christian life, you're never persecuted, nobody ever gets irritated or bothered by you, then you're doing something wrong. Now, there's a way we can fix that, right? We can go be judgmental. We can be prideful. We can be inconsiderate to people. We can feel better than other people. It's easy to bring persecution upon yourself. But can you imagine when you are persecuted because you live out these things, Jesus says, you're humble, you're gracious, you're merciful, you love righteousness, you always do what's right, and that is what brings persecution? See, we're never supposed to be persecuted for the wrong things we do. We should be persecuted for being faithful. A Christian should be the gracious, most humble, hardworking person in any company. People should just say, oh man, nobody's looking, but look how hard they work. Look how faithful they are. And that's what believers should be like. People who live this out, and the persecution that comes is because when people want to deny the existence of God, when they want to live an evil life, our life is shining a light. That's who God calls us to be. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 13 through 16. We are to live for God's glory. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You know, what is the purpose of your life? Christians are supposed to be salty. They're supposed to be an influence inside society. They're supposed to be a light that helps people see who Jesus is. You should be an influence. You should put Christ on display in your life. And if you live this way, you will. And so that's what God calls us to, to do everything for the glory of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Is that what motivates you? Is that what drives you? Is, is that what dominates your relationships with people? Is I want to honor God. I want to glorify God in my life. I want to glorify God at work. I want to put God's attributes on display. Is that what motivates your life? And if, I think if you live out these qualities, I think that'll be true. You know, this morning... I want to see us be blessed because we know, that we know the truth. We're comforted by the fact that no matter what happens in our life, we have God's blessing poured out upon us. I want us to be inspired to look at that list of things and say, okay, are those in my life and are they growing? To, to set the target in the right place, to not make excuses. Oh yeah, generally speaking, I'm merciful, but there's a few people I'm not merciful to. Generally speaking, I forgive people, but there are certain people I don't forgive. But to just say, no, this is who God calls me to be. I'm going to be inspired to live that out. One of the things that Jesus says is that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, make no mistake, there is a yoke to being a Christian. Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You ever think about that? Jesus says, anybody's welcome, but you give up your whole life to follow me. Oh, you're willing to give up 90% of your life? Nope, you're out. You give up your whole life to follow Christ. There is a yoke. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because he's changed our heart. We read this list and we don't think, oh my goodness, that's terrible. I don't want to forgive people. We don't read this list and see things in our life that are lacking and think, oh man, I can't do that stuff. I don't want to do that stuff. When we see things in our life that are not what they should be, we're excited. We're thankful. We're like, oh Jesus, I want to be that. I want that to be true in my life. Yes, this is hard for me. Help me change. Help me live this out. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. First John says, how do you know you love Jesus? Because you keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't it an amazing thing that we look at this list and we're not trying to be good enough for Jesus? We don't see weaknesses and failures in our life and think, oh man, I'm not good enough. Jesus was good enough for us. But we are diligent and we are disciplined. Philippians, 12, uh, Philippians 1, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work hard. But we're not working for salvation. 
We're working out our salvation. And that makes all the difference in the world. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I think one of the most wonderful things is to remember that Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. We are not trying to be good enough for God. Jesus was good enough for us. Uh, we have tables in the, the front and the back. And so I'm going to read a passage and the worship band will come forward. And as the song is being played, um, pray, go, and take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, for laying out what it looks like when a person knows you and how they live and what they're motivated by and how they view life. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to live this way, that our lives would grow more and more to reflect you. Lord, thank you that when we see these weaknesses and failures in our life, we're not discouraged, we're not overcome. We know that you forgive everything and that the solution to failure is repentance. Lord, bring us to you in repentance. And Lord, change our life. Help us to live out these desires that we have in your name. Amen.